The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Sarah Wood, CEO of Calusa, platform powering the future of energy. From revolutionizing billing to smart electric vehicle charging, their platform is working with some of the biggest energy suppliers to connect and save customers millions. Sarah has as broad and a diverse background as you'll ever come across. She's a product leader, general manager, non-executive board member, startup advisor, but also a builder at heart. She's helped companies from seed through to multiple IPOs and acquisitions, working at global brands such as Gap, taking over product at Flickr from Stuart Butterfield, being the chief digital officer of the World Health Organization, and also helping the UK, where she lives now, with their COVID tracking and response systems. In short, her personal interests and purpose have taken her everywhere. So let's go back to the beginning and hear how she started and what she's had to learn and unlearn along the way. My resume looks different than most. I've definitely collected a, a whole range of experiences that I'm proud of, but also that really match to who I am in a way, to get too hippie about it. But I think for me, there's a really obvious thread between a company like Gap or Flickr to the work that I did at the UN or the work that I did at Harvard or even the work that I'm doing now. And and that thread is how do you take the combination of technology together with data in order to steer a company or steer an organization towards new ways of thinking, new ways of working, and eventually putting together information and products and services out into the world that didn't exist before. And I often say, I consider myself to be a builder at heart. I'm in management now and I don't do a lot of the hands-on anymore. In fact, I, I don't do any of the, you know, I don't write code or anything anymore. But that builder feeling at the center of who I am has really kind of enabled me to go from place to place with, through the lens of what is interesting here? What's interesting about the technology that we're using? What's interesting about the space that we're thinking about? What's interesting about the humans that will be impacted by the combination of that data and that technology and that company? And I've been very careful about the places I've gone. I've gone purposefully to different jobs in order to create that combination that hopefully in the end makes something good in the world. It's the impact and the kind of the network effects of what you're putting out into the world. I have to believe in it. And so for me, like where I sit, like the, the step from one thing to the next, there seems to be a clear path. But I think for those looking at my resume, as you have done, it's not always obvious. But for me, it's that combination of technology meets data. And what are the combinations or derivatives that you can make with that combination that is very creative and very interesting and new? And that's pretty much what's propelled me even before I started university. When I got my first computer in the 80s, I started using fonts, using HyperCard on old Macs to submit my school papers. And I thought that was really an interesting combination of this technology and the, the content or the data that I was writing about. So 
for me, it's really about the creativity and the kind of what new can be created from old that technology and data together can do. So this is sort of fascinating for me, right? Because I meet so many people who maybe are working in a certain domain and they'd like to do something different, but it's hard for them because maybe they've built up such expertise in a specific domain that I feel it's it's difficult for them even to transition or to, how would they start or are their skills transferable? Or like, I think people have a lot of those sort of trepidations. So what do you think has helped you? You know, you mentioned your values and your purpose helps you guide about where you might want to go. But what about some mm. of, you know, maybe your intuitive capabilities or natural characteristics that are helping you sort of identify these spaces, but then also go into them and, and sort of get up to speed in them to a certain extent? Like that's going to be nervous for some people. What helps you make those moves? I think you're absolutely right. I do think that is kind of a nerve wracking, as you say, place to be for people when faced with the decision. For me, it's, you hear a lot about curiosity, being curious about learning, about propelling forward. There's quotes that if a shark stops swimming, it dies. I think there's something to that though. And I think the combination of really being curious about the world around you, about the business that you're in and adaptable to what you find on the other side of that. So for example, my move to Gap was I had not worked in retail before. I had gotten pretty far into my career. I was at a certain level. I had done much of my time in either the United Nations setting or in VC-funded startups at various levels from seed stage, even through to acquisition and IPO. What I hadn't done is anything that met the real world, the physical world. And Gap provided me that opportunity, but it was a really scary move. I didn't know anything about stores. I'd never worked in a store or in retail before. Well, when I was 16, I worked in a video store renting VHS tapes. Yeah, but since then, I, I had not and never worked a cash register since then either. So to jump into that was really scary. I had to learn supply chain. I had to learn factories and warehouses and all kinds of things that most people would study in school and come out with a master's degree in supply chain. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so, but that curiosity made that worth the risk for me. And the adaptability piece made it such that I truly walked in with my eyes open, wanting to learn that space. And my advice to people, people have asked before, is it just depends on who you are. If there's any natural progression in a career, and when you start, and when I started was the same, I was very tactical, very hands-on. I happened to start my career in tech when I was a bit of a jack-of-all-trades, as many of us were. So I did writing and editing. I did research. I did design. I did programming. I did the marketing of the stuff that we built. And as the industries matured, I've no longer needed to have such a broad set of skills. I was able to start to kind of hone in on where I naturally, like where I was naturally a better fit. And that happened to be the management track. But in order to do the management track, you have to purposefully give up some of the tactical. You can't be a manager and a multiplier of teams and people if you're also diving in, giving the answers and doing the tactical stuff yourself as well. And so at a certain stage of growth, you're able to do the player coach 
model and you're able to do a little bit hands-on, a little bit coach. But as you move up, you become much more management and more of that multiplier, creating conditions for success for people to bring in new innovations. And then that question of how do you make a jump into an industry that maybe you haven't worked in before or into a size of a company that maybe you haven't done before or even a, a business model that's new to you. If you go from ad revenue generated to you know direct-to-consumer sales, that looks different. You have to know that you're walking in with some transferable skills, but those aren't what's going to make or break you. What's going to make or break you is your curiosity and your ability to adapt to that new environment. And I do think that a lot of people get trapped and think, well, if I were to leave this, I won't have the title anymore. I might not get the same pay. And that really just comes down to personal preference. Are you willing to take that risk? Are you curious enough to learn that new thing? And is there value in it, not only for yourself, but for what you believe you can do for the company and for the the world, frankly? I mean, I know that sounds lofty, but I very much take the point of view that as technologists, we have that responsibility, not just for the users of, of our own tech, but people who may be impacted by that technology that aren't directly users. And so I think there's a lot of transferable thinking that can go from between levels and, and across company size and scale, even across different business models. But if you don't walk in and kind of check your ego at the door and be truly curious about what you're walking into, you likely won't succeed. And you should probably stay where you are, possibly. But for me, I think that's the main thing is just that fear factor. Don't be scared to move to a smaller company or to a different role if you're eager to learn and be challenged and want to see what's on the other side of that. And that's just naturally where I lie. And that's where I've been able to make those jumps, some more successfully than others. I haven't always made the jump perfectly well. There's been areas of tech that it was harder for me to learn and harder for me to feel good about the contributions I brought to the table. But I think, again, as the industry's matured and there is so much different kind of niche skills needed in order to run a really well-run methodology or a really well-organized team, I've been able to find my groove across different industries. But it does it's take really, a certain uh, amount of risk-taking. Yeah. Well, what I really enjoy about doing these podcasts is when you ask people these questions that are somewhat intuitive to them, really surfaces actually the thought that goes into these things. And that's actually what really helps people. Listening to you talk about, you know, finding something that's aligned to your purpose, your values, areas that you're interested in, things that you want to learn, recognizing what you know when you don't know, going in with your sort of eyes open about you know, that you will have to learn new things, like going into retail and understanding supply chains, massively complex in itself, never mind trying to actually understand how stores operate. And I, these, I think helping people understand your thought process there of like calibrating around what matters to you and areas you're curious around, recognizing what you'll have to learn, what will be new to you. And that isn't just a business, but the technology, the people, the skills. There are a lot of things to consider when people make these jumps. But I think as you're describing this, I think it gives people a really model for them to think around about if I'm going to make some of these changes, there are a lot of things to think about. But if you sort of start calling them out and recognizing them and 
making them visible to yourself, I think that can have a really, really helpful way for you to start making that decision. And what's also strikes me about this is, I find this a lot when I talk to product management people as well. It seems to be a discipline that has, is still evolving, but nobody's trained to be a product manager. Somebody, people were designers, people were engineers, people, you know, myself, I started as an engineer and I, I liked building code, but I realized over time, I actually liked figuring out what the product was you wanted to build and then help the team build code. I think so much of our, our work is you learn your way through it. You learn, as you sort of said, like, what's your fit? What's really lights me up? What gives me energy? Where do I want to spend my time? And it's kind of really, again, it seems so interesting, your latest jump. Now you're, you're sort of, I know you're passionate about climate change and energy. And yet, when you met Stephen Fitzpatrick, who's the CEO of Ovo Energy, he invited you to sort of come and lead this new business in a whole new sector again. I'm sort of curious, again, to hear you sort of what inspired you to sort of make this new jump into a very interesting, still emergent, probably understood, hugely impactful, purposeful domain is like solving yeah. energy crises, right? I think maybe what of some of the things you've had to unlearn even from your previous roles as you've gone into this sort of new sector, what have been some of the insights that have struck you on, on that journey? Sure. There's a lot packed into that. I'll start though first by saying that, and maybe I could have been more articulate in the beginning about the thread that I see between some of the choices I've made from organization to organization. That combination of data and technology, if you really step back and think about it, what that is effectively is a platform play. Hasn't always been called that, but effectively that's what it is. And because I have had the benefit of of working in different industries from telecom to fashion even the data generated by the United Nations in places like Public Library of Science, really hardcore scientific data. The combination of, of that is a platform. And if, if you're thinking about technology in a certain way and you're thinking about it as a, a key advantage for that industry, where you land is the combination of technology and data forms a platform that enables a pretty huge shift in the way that industry operates. So far, that the industry no longer resembles what it did before. And so the example of that is the job I was in just prior to coming to Calusa was Farfetch. And I joined Farfetch from Gap after I had spent a number of years learning supply chain and the fashion industry and those sorts of things. But I moved to London from San Francisco to join Farfetch because of the platform play and the way that I could see platform truly impacting supply chain from sources of supply around the world to where that supply was going and why and what did the customer base look like and what were the different consumer interactions that would make that a success or a failure. When I started talking to Stephen Fitzpatrick, it was really around technology and data as that platform that would enable a transition in the energy industry. And so the conversation was really about how exciting that was because for all of us humans on this planet, I mean, the climate crisis is tremendous. And 
there is so much work ahead of us, but it's what we do now, the response that we have now informing the future for generations to come. I mean, I have children, I have two boys, you know, we try to be good citizens, we turn the lights off, we recycle, et cetera. But there's so much fundamental underlying technology and data that's not being employed at the service of the climate crisis. And that's where Stephen's heart is. And it's why he built the OVO Group. It's why he spun Kaluza as a technology platform to serve the energy industry, not just the OVO Group. And that gets me really excited. Like I said, the curiosity and how do I adapt what I know into this new space, it really triggered a whole host of emotions for me because it's so close to us as humans. I can make similar comments around, say, fashion. You know, we all get up and get dressed in the morning. We all choose what we're going to wear and why. And there's a fair amount of emotional attachment to that. And I felt really compelled by that idea of self-expression and art. But if you really take a step back, I can think of no more important thing I would want to be working on than the climate crisis, personally speaking. And so if you think about platform in that regard, it's how do we empower people in their homes who are just living a normal life to both understand how they participate in the energy ecosystem and adapt behavior. And in some cases, and you see this a lot, people who are early adopters of electric vehicles, people who might have smart homes, people who have chosen only to use energy suppliers that are green, for example. In the United States, it's different. So this is one side note, a key difference between the US, for example, people who live in California, where I used to live, you don't have choice. You use PG&E, and that's who you use unless you want to kit out your house with solar panels and go off the grid. And a lot of people are choosing that. But the UK represents a really interesting market in that people have choice, consumers have choice. And so what we're seeing in this industry and, and how we're assembling the data and the technology is the more choice and empowerment we can put out there, the more consumers take that and run and demand more and more choice. And the transformative nature of, of just creating that and making those kind of services and products available is accelerating the change towards that demand for green, sustainable energy. And I've seen nothing like it. I mean, like I said, I've worked on platforms before from content platforms to fashion to telecom. But again, at a personal level, there's nothing more important than the climate crisis to me. And that seems to be hold true because of the 7 billion people in the world, most of us have electricity and we need to be able to put those humans at the center of what we do. And there's no better way to do that than taking a platform approach. So when Stephen and I were talking, it was less around, do I personally have the experience in energy and have I worked at PG&E or British Gas and Electric? And more, do I know how to assemble a team to tackle this? Do I understand emerging tech? Do I understand the value of data? And can I use that to have a multiplying effect into the, the vision that Stephen has? And how do I help him put that out there into the world? And like I said, it's not only for his OVO brands, which are energy retailers, but it's for anyone working in the energy space, whether that be another retailer or you know grid operators or people in their homes who have an electric vehicle and want to ensure that it's only charged with wind and solar, as an example, and that, that's one of the products we've built. But again, it's that combination. It's jumping into a new 
industry, but with a fair amount of the fundamentals of curiosity. How do you learn it about it, but also bring into it the things that I don't know and and really tap into what are the consumers telling us? What are what are people telling us through their purchase of electric vehicles? What are we seeing on the market through people's choice to go with green only energy suppliers? It's really just bringing all the parts of the whole together in a way that create conditions for that to succeed. And my, again, my role is less the tactician and the hands-on kind of here's how I, I need the product to be built and more creating those conditions for success in service of that vision that Steve brought me in for. Yeah. So what I'm really enjoying hearing you share here is this sort of platform thinking. It's obvious to me that you're not only just applying it to like the technology, right? So building the product, making sure it has good telemetry, understanding how your customers use it, gathering that data to make your decisions on the product you build. This pattern is intuitive to you, both the way you sort of live and see the world in many ways, right? You're, you're looking at trends, you're looking for the data that exists from the people you're working with, the teams you're, you're trying to solve, the market conditions that are are sort of happening, the trends that they're moving in. And you're also pulling all this information into your sort of own platform to a certain extent and synthesizing this and then feeding that back out to your teams, to the direction you're going. And especially when you hear you talk about multiplying effect, I think that is such an important skill that I think maybe few leaders recognize is that you're building this platform for your other team members to be able to use these systems, right? Like that they can gather the data they need to make the decisions, to change their behavior, to change the direction of the product, to change the way that you're working. And I think it's so important, you know, for people to hear that in your stories. You know, they often think of platforms and they just think of, oh, well, hang on, is Amazon a platform and they just build things and launch things and what's happening there? And But I think this is a pattern. When people get aware of the different import sources that they should be thinking about, whether you're managing people and you're trying to create a a culture, a platform where people can succeed that you're leading, or you're actually building a technology product and it has different components that it can bring in the information and it can be synthesized and people can actually change their approach or their behavior as a result of those insights. You know, I think that mindset and that system of working is extremely powerful. Again, it's sort of transferable. Again, what I'm hearing you say is because that system sort of exists within yourself, it's almost intuitive at this stage. Pointing your direction from retail to energy, it's it's not such a big shock. It's like, right, I've got this learning mechanism sort of built into me. I'm just going to recalibrate the domain and start applying the same system of learning and understanding and making decisions based on what I'm learning in that domain. So I, I think there's a, it's really important for people to hear that and what you're saying, because yeah, that's I what I'm that, hearing. Yeah, I'm glad that you are hearing that. I, it sounds articulate coming out of your mouth, but yeah, I agree. And I think there's another element that I would add to that, which is if you take that mindset or that system of learning and you apply it into a new industry, and I know Stephen feels this way too, we've discussed it a lot, in recruiting someone with my profile, he did say he's really interested in people who are product leaders because they do take that approach, that methodology, 
the kind of mental models that they bring to the table look very much like CEOs of the future. And one of the things that I think is important in that and how I interpreted his comments and how I, what I believe is that at no two points in time is, is anything ever the same, meaning the data is not static. People aren't static. A company is not static. So I've been fortunate enough to work at companies of all stages of maturity and, and stages of funding and, and public and private. And it doesn't matter if you're in two companies at the exact same stage of maturity with the same number of customers, they're not going to be the same. What works in one does not work in the other. And I think people often get a little comfortable, too comfortable with that assumption that they've seen this before and they know how to fix it. And you see this a lot. You see this especially coming out of you know large companies where it's very complex and data's flying all over the place. It's really, a, I've seen this before, this is the solution. And I definitely don't take that approach because, and I think this was drilled into me very early in my career as well, which is the fact that data is ever evolving, the fact that people are ever evolving and companies themselves, if you think of them almost as a person, they're ever evolving. If you rely on what you know, the data from yesterday, you're going to build for yesterday's needs. You're not going to build for tomorrow. You're going to hire a team that was needed last year, not the one needed next year. I, as a, a leader, will end up kind of hitting the same speed bumps that I hit five years ago. The forward momentum that you need to keep at top of your mind in that learning system, I think, is the key there. And again, if I tie it back to, to adjectives, it would be you know adaptability and curiosity of what's ahead and being able, there's an old saying in product, it's it's part following the data, but part following your gut and which part is the one that's going to succeed. It is a bit of both, but I think that that concept of constantly challenging yourself, but understanding what are the core conditions for you to have that multiplying effect, for your business to move forward in a kind of sane way that tackles the problems that we're seeing in the industry, or tackles the needs of the consumers, tackles the needs of the people that use our platform. It's that mental model, I think, that that is key. It's less, I know what to do and what to build, and more, here's the rough conditions that need to be true in order for us all to have the impact. I love this, right? Because you're talking about how can I find out what to do rather than I know what to do. I think that's, exactly. that's a really, yeah. really powerful notion for people to sort of understand. So I have to ask you then about some fun examples where you've had to sort of unlearn yourself. What have been some of the moments that sort of strike you as you, you've made the experiences you've had or moments that stand out to you? Yeah, I think I'll have to think of some clear moments, but I mean, there's a few. I mean, 2020 has its own set of challenges and we could spend hours talking about what we've all collectively had to learn and unlearn. Given. Well, I'd love to hear that. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to hear some, especially around the energy challenges or moving these teams around. You've had to scale a business from like, yes. you know, a tens to hundreds yes. yeah, during yeah. this time. Like what, what have been some of your insights in that space? Because we, and again, this is part of that kind of what are the conditions that need to be true to do the work that Stephen brought me in to do. Calusa is a technology company and we are a platform technology company specifically, and that implies emerging tech, data, all of the machine learning and AI that goes into really understanding how a grid is balanced, that sort of thing for the energy space. 
But because of that, because we are a technology first company, we were able to transition to remote working very easily. We had the tools in place. And a lot of people who've worked with me at Calusa have worked from home before, maybe not full time, but certainly, you know, parts of their life, a day here, a day there. In that transition, the biggest challenge, honestly, has been how do people set up their home desk in an ergonomic way so their back doesn't hurt. And I think we can all relate to that. My back hurts all the time now. I don't sit properly at home. That's it. I uh, iterate my desk (laughs) setup. I think every two weeks, it's pretty fun. Right. Yeah. It's like, wait, maybe this chair from my living room. But we did. Calusa has grown from 40 to 400 in a very short period of time. Most of that time I started, you know, at the beginning of 2020 and all of that growth has been in that time. So it's been remote. Additionally, we made the decision to start hiring into Lisbon, Portugal. We predominantly are a UK-based business. Obviously, we're serving the UK energy market first and foremost. But for a technology business, if you look at the European market, Lisbon is a tremendous pool of talent. I had experience working with Portuguese talent from Farfetch, and it just made a lot of sense for us to tap into that. And because we're all remote, it was a very a leveling kind of piece of the puzzle and that nobody was at a disadvantage because they were onboarding remotely because everybody's onboarding remotely. So that was one thing we've been able to do is to continue our pace of growth of talent in a way that I'm not sure everyone has been as lucky as we have. And I think it's because we had made some decisions early on, A, go fully remote quickly and we could do so and we had the tools in place, but B, be open to tapping into tremendous talent in other places like Lisbon. So that's one thing. The other thing is, which sounds crazy to say out loud, but during lockdown, we finished out a very complicated piece of our platform and then did a full migration of one of our customers of that platform. So we went from none of their customers or a handful of test customers to almost their entire customer base is now being served through the Calusa platform. And for anyone who's gone through a replatforming exercise, <laughs> yeah, I like think I'm I need smelling, to say yeah, 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 yeah. how complicated that was and how exhilarating. It was hard, but incredibly rewarding. And I think in times like this, where the lines are blurred between home and your job, between night and day, between just all of it, like time is kind of starts to lack as much meaning as it had before, especially going into winter here in the UK, it's, it's dark at four. And I think now more than ever, that pride of work is a tremendous motivator for people and anchors them and anchors their day in a way that has more meaning, I, I believe, because what are you doing with your time and your day? Are you just sitting in front of video conference calls? Or are you actually seeing transformative effects into this space of energy in the way that we all join Calusa to have. And I think, again, going remote, still growing at the pace that we are and replatforming has kind of created that, like I said, the conditions for certain things. This would be a condition for pride of work. I believe in my own management style that pride of work, there's no way to give that. It has to come from within. And you as a manager have to create a situation where you're empowering people. And I do believe that in in that situation, people rise to the challenge. And I think that's such a powerful hook for people in doing their best work that 
you can't give. It's not a putting a date deadline. It's not saying if you don't get this metric from A to B, you know, you're in trouble. It flips it around to say, here's the opportunity on the table. Are we ready for it or not? And if, if you approach it that way, you do see what I've just seen in the past six to eight months, which is we replatformed an entire energy company in a very short space of time. Obviously, we still have work to do to make the platform better and keep that customer very happy, but we did it. Other things we've done because of COVID is we've seen a huge channel shift from people calling call centers and moving a lot of their interactions online. That's not directly to us, but it's to energy suppliers. And we're able to do things like roll out consumer-facing features in the matter of of weeks, not months. Mm -hmm. It's a very small turnaround in order to meet some of these kind of burning new demands that were created from the corona situation. So really a lot of, I'm not saying this has been a good time for anyone, but giving people a sense of what you do matters. Here's the impact of that work. And we actually have something to show for it is hugely rewarding, I think. I think it's massive at the moment. You're reminding me of, so we had Sachel Watson on the show recently. She leads them software development business solutions for Wells Fargo, right? And they've had to deal with going fully remote and the the teams having to respond to like the the government deciding that they're going to give small business loans with with no requirements, but it had to be ready on Monday, you know? Right. Yeah. Also had the chance to work with Tesco's bank as well and in the UK as well, trying to respond to customers. And they did things like set up remote customer service people at home within three and a half weeks, which is absolutely unheard of in terms of what they would have been able to do under different conditions. But this notion you're talking about pride of work or the how important it is for people when they're, they're actually achieving so many amazing things in such difficult circumstances, just in any way with having to make these transitions from you know working in an office to working at home with all the challenges working at home brings for people you know with families without families just all of these sort of challenges that folks are facing i think these recognitions of achievement or people need to be more connected to their purpose how mm-hmm. they're helping people like the the folks at Tesco's like light up because they can see how they're helping customers like go to the store and exactly, be able yeah. to tap pay just by like increasing the amount that instead of only having a threshold, it's a little bit higher so they can do their shopping and they feel safer. They don't have to bring cash. It is inspiring for people when they are doing these early yeah. calls, late nights, but they're actually truly connected to impacting customers and making things better and having an effect. And like that lights people up. It gives them a a huge amount. And I think that's definitely been one thing I've noticed is small acts of kindness or recognition for people have a profound effect at the moment. And what's a huge accelerant and multiplier uh, to your point is when your teams can get connected to the impact they're having on customers and achieving amazing things. I think uh, it's such an important point for, I think, so many people to think about is how to make sure that mechanism is there, that that your teams are seeing the benefits that they're creating from the hard work they're putting in at the moment. 
with yeah, their absolutely, peers and yeah. their customers. Absolutely. And that's theme for me, even pre-pandemic, but you know, working in a regulated industry such as energy is very similar to the banking example. We need to ensure there's vulnerable people in their homes. They can't go without heat and hot water, for example. There's people who've lost their jobs. They can't, it's harder for them to pay. What are the hardship schemes looking like? That sort of thing. That is not directly Calusa customer base. That is Ovo Energy and SSE and the energy suppliers. But our job very much is to ensure that they can do that job with in the most kind, human-centered way possible. And if we aren't doing that at Calusa and thinking that way, we're not doing a good job. And so our heart very much is very similar to what you just mentioned with, with the groceries and the, the banking. But I would even broaden that. And I think perhaps the pandemic will usher in an era where that consideration, I hope anyway, is top of mind and continues forward. So I can remember about a year and I don't know, but I was pre-lockdown. I can't remember exactly when I did a a talk in Hamburg at one of the Mind the Product, Mind the Product Engage. And the topic there was really about human-centered design and and how the impacts of technology we put out into the world can impact anyone. So for example, Uber just isn't for the drivers and the riders. You know, if there's congestion, that impacts people who live there. And I know Uber takes that seriously, as do cities who allow Uber in, et cetera. A lot of technology that we put out there has effects on people that we're not considering. Someone came up to me after that, a young product manager, and he was working at a bank in Canada. And he said, your talk really resonated with me. It's close to who I am and to what I care about. But I don't know how to apply that in my daily life because what I do is I work on the communications, the customer communications for accounts inside of this bank. And you know, I have a, a small part of the product, overall product offering that I get to impact. And as I started talking to him, I questioned like, well, tell me about what you mean by communications. Are you directly communicating? What's triggering these communications? Is it the creation of a new account or is it upselling? Is it like, what is it? And, and as I talked him through, he kind of landed on like, he does have agency, even in yeah, the role yeah, that he has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because... He could take the route of straight up top line, drive more customer accounts, or he could weave into that thinking and the way the bank he works for thinks around how do you help people understand their actions? Say if you're 25-year-old and you've got an account with this bank, could the products that he's building lead that person towards a better financial future in terms of their retirement planning, for example, or say they want to buy a house at 30? Is his communication helping them along a good path or is it simply straight up business top line, bottom line? And is there a way to put good into the world that is still good for the business of that bank? And I believe there is. I believe absolutely every company should be thinking, if I do right by people, not just the people that use my product, but ideally they should be thought of first and foremost as when you're building, but understand that what you're putting out there is going to be better than what is. If you really believe that, business follows. And I think doing good and being authentic is good business, frankly. And, I, I agree and, with you. So yeah. Much. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering if, yeah, we'll see some of that post COVID because there's been such a tremendous outpouring of 
humanity in many ways of care for each other and checking in and creating tools that connect rather than divide. And I just hope some of that humanity continues forward because I think we'd lost the way a bit in the the prior few years. Yeah. Well, you know, it's really nice to hear you remind me, especially too, as well, that people do have agency. I can imagine being the 25 odd year old product manager in a massive bank going like, how can I affect this institution with, with the slice I have of the picture? Right. And, but I think you're right. We have huge agency. We probably don't realize, but if we, if we take that intent of, yeah, we, I could optimize for revenue. Well, great. That's not really that motivating for me, but actually I, I can actually do some really good things by my, if I do good things by my customer, good things will happen and that'll take care of the revenue. I think these yeah. notions are really, really important because you do, that's where I think people feel like they can act. I have two questions I want to ask you then more now. So one, what is the advice you would give to leaders who are struggling with this concept of both learning and unlearning? What would be one bit of advice you'd share with folks in that space? I mean, you know, we've touched on some of it. It's around, we talked about it you know, if you were to choose to change industries or the discipline that you you work in today, we've talked about curiosity and the ability to adapt to new situations. But I think fundamentally as a human, it's it's rooted in that fear, a fear of, of I don't know, looking silly or our fear of being seen to have all the answers or our fear of, if I do that, will I lose my job? That fear is is such a strong kind of element in all of our lives. And I, I would argue that it's probably the thing that harms all of us the most. And when I was, I used to work at a company, it's now called Fandom, but it was the core of Wikipedia. It was MediaWiki. And we had done a spun out with Jimmy Wales to build a company called Wikia. And it, it was effectively all of the content and all of the amazing like detail that the knowledge out in the world on anything that didn't exactly fit in the Wikipedia community guidelines. So if you wanted to know every Pokemon character and every Star Wars fan fiction, and a lot of that is out there, but it was no place to go. And we built this company called Wikia. Again, it's called Fandom today, but you know, Wikipedia is on there. A lot of people will have come across it, but again, it was, it was in conjunction with Wikipedia using the MediaWiki platform. We had a lot of engineers in Poland, and for some reason in Poland, there were just tremendous numbers of hardcore Wikipedia editors. And we created a center of amazing engineering talent in Poznan, Poland. And I used to go a lot. And what, one of the things I loved about those trips was Poland is such a rich history of, of fables and just different ways of looking at the world. And one of the engineers said to me, just kind of in passing, as if everybody knows this, fear is a bad advisor. And it was something we were talking over a beer one day. And I was like, wait, what? And explain to me why you would say that to me in this context. And he was like, yeah, because if we're going to do that, we might not do it because of fear and fear is a bad advisor. And therefore, I think we should put fear aside and go forward with this decision. And and it struck me, it seems so simple, but it struck me as, as probably the motto for my life in a way. Yeah, Right yeah, it, yeah, yeah. I've had a bracelet even made of it that I wear, a gold bangle that has it engraved just to remind myself that anytime I'm hesitating, anytime I feel uncomfortable about either a decision or a move, 
pretty much anything that, that don't let fear be the determining factor. And I think fundamentally, we can talk about traits that are positive, curiosity, adaptability, risk-taking, you know, appetite for risk is talked a lot in the tech space, entrepreneurs and their appetite for risk. But I think the fundamental core of that is, are the opposite pull is fear. And so I think if you can really understand that about yourself and what brings fear to the top of mind for you, what wakes you up at night, what scares you, and really confront it in an open space, I think that's probably the number one way to pass through from learning and unlearning. It's something that will inspire you to learn, but it's also something that will force you to look in the mirror and say like, hey, this actually isn't serving me anymore and I need to move on from this. And if it's rooted in fear, your adaptability and curiosity is a bit paralyzed, I believe. <laughs> I'm high-fiving you right here. You know, it resonates so much, you know, and I think it's just such a, a great statement for the times that fear is a bad advisor. And I, I love you have a bracelet of that. And it resonates a lot with me because, you know, a lot of, I would say, is to think big and have big aspirations and starting small allows you to tackle some of those. And that's how to tackle fear as well. Small little steps. And yeah, I think small uh, steps. Exactly. There. So my one last question then for you is what you are most excited about. Like, what are you looking forward to in the future? What's some of the things that are top of mind for you that you're, especially in the space you're working with around climate change? What are some of the things that are stand out to you? Yeah, I, I mean, there's, there's a lot. I think I'm American, as you can probably tell from my voice. And I grew up in the deep South. And on one side of my family was my dad's a farmer. But on my mom's side, my whole family on my mom's side worked in the oil industry. And my grandfather, in fact, started, he worked in the oil fields of Oklahoma and Texas in the, in the 1930s a true like entry laboring job where he's digging dirt in the oil fields. He also was part of the first oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico in the 1940s and then rose through his company, never leaving, and became, at the end of his life, he was a vice president at Phillips Petroleum. And I grew up with that as my only corporate model. It's the only one I knew who had gone to university in my life. He's the only one that worked in a company and how he succeeded was starting in the, the oil fields and moving his way up. And my grandfather was an amazing man. And if I look at kind of just watching him and how he conducted himself and thinking though about all of the things that we now know about that industry, it doesn't jive with who he was as a person. And I, yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? He's, he's not a, Absolutely, a, yeah. Right? Yeah. a person who would advocate for oil spills in the Gulf of Mexico. I grew up on the Gulf of Mexico and there were times I've had in my life where we weren't allowed to go to the, the coast for that summer because there was oil in the water. And then to fast forward to where I am now and to be able to apply kind of my accumulated skills and experience into furthering how do we get energy simply, cheaply, but safely with the eye for making the world a better place than we found it is really motivating for me personally. And getting to meet Stephen and getting to meet the team and seeing what's going on under the hood has been incredible. I'm learning so much about things around flexibility markets, as an example. How do you, how do you balance the grid? How do you understand that 
the sources of energy that are renewable versus non? And how do you put more of that goodness out into the grid for people to use as opposed to just firing up coal plants? And what can my part in the stage of history we're in today be in helping that transformation is at a personal level really amazing. I'm, I'm amazed that I have this opportunity, like I said, given how I grew up in the United States. But so that's one thing I'm really excited about. I think what we're building is, is tremendous. I think it's truly impactful. I'm already seeing the impacts of it within the OVO group, but there's a big world out there. There's, like I said, there's billions of people that use energy every day and, and how there's a lot of work ahead for a lot of different people with a vision to see a new world different, see this world operating differently and less reliance on some of these things that we do know is damaging the environment around us that prevents people like me as a kid from going to the beach in the summer because there's oil in the water. So yeah, that's one of the things personally, I I feel the intersection of my own life, the skills that I've been able to accumulate applied in this space for Calusa. That's the thing I'm really excited about. I'm thrilled to be here and a lot of work ahead, but it's important work. And it, like I said, is has that pride of work piece all of us humans have. I think I'm quite lucky at the moment. I think, yeah, well, I think it really shines through that you're really deeply connected to what you're working on and power to you. I can yeah. sense you're going to do some great stuff there as you've <laughs> obviously done everywhere you've went. Yeah, no, I wish you all the best with this. And again, thank you for coming on the show and sharing some of your experiences and insights and learnings and on learning. It's been a real pleasure to have you on, Sarah. Thank you. Yeah, it's been been really fun. Thanks. Thank you for having me.